Welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the 466th show of ROI. Our guest for today is Dr. Edward Curtis, William M. and Gail M. Platter Chair of Liberal Arts at Indiana University in Indianapolis. And we're going to be talking about his book, Muslims in the Heartland. The history buff for today's show is Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Sapsapital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. So to begin, welcome to the show, Edward. It's my pleasure to be with you. We are excited to have you here. Um, our first segment is called Farouk Dinarin, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So start us off with just some basic information um, on Muslim immigration into the Midwest. Who, when, where, whatever you think we need to kind of have a baseline of who we're talking about. You bet. The first significant um, population of Muslims to come and to what we know affectionately as the American Midwest occurred when there was a large wave of immigration from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe and, um, and from all around the world. The Midwest was in desperate need of labor for two reasons. One, its industrial base along the Great Lakes all the way to Chicago was expanding uh, dramatically at the time, and that was related to the need for more agricultural labor. Technological innovation, the building of railroads, the invention of the refrigerated uh, railroad car, which allowed places um, in Iowa and the Dakotas to process meat and then send it long distances, all of that meant that there was an enormous boom after the Civil War in, in the Midwest. And so, so, so many of these farms and agriculture and industry were in need of labor. Well, we know, the Midwest that we know today is largely populated by the descendants of people who came as a result, Germans, uh, in Iowa, Bohemians, or Czech and Slovak people. Uh, you name it, we found all kinds of Greeks, all kinds of communities. And some of the people who came were Muslim. Now, most of them were from the eastern Mediterranean, Syria and Lebanon. A few of them were from Bosnia in southeastern Europe. Some of them were from South Asia and Central Asia, but the majority of these immigrants who came at this time were from what today is Syria and Lebanon. At the time, was one country ruled by the Ottoman Empire. Okay, so I assume, as is true of so much of our immigration history, we have waves. So do we have waves then coming at different points over the next say, 120 years, 150 years or so? It's a great question. So from the 1880s until World War One, there was a, a, you know, a large wave of immigration. Then World War One cuts off travel across the Atlantic. It resumes, but after it resumes, after World War One, an enormous anti-immigrant feeling sweeps across the Midwest. Indiana becomes ruled by the KKK, a governor and a mayor in Indianapolis. Oregon has a tremendous uh, representation of the KKK, and the KKK gets its wish. 
which is to cut off non-white immigration. And so in 1924, the U.S. Congress passes the um, Johnson-Reed Act, which basically cuts off immigration from all of Asia, uh, including Syria. Uh, It does it in a sly way. It establishes a quota system, which from that point on allows 100 people from Syria to come into the country. So, so at that time, it's not until 1965 and the civil rights movement that we get a total repeal of that racist law. And after 1965, that's when in Iowa and across the country, you see physicians and other people starting to move into uh, small towns uh, who are in need of uh, doctors and, uh, and other kinds of professionals they're given, uh, you know, they're given a, uh, a visa because they're willing to take those jobs. So we have a big gap in our Midwestern Muslim history from 24 to really, even though there's a, a little bit of immigration, there's not very much. So these communities that establish themselves, they are keeping in touch with their former homelands through letters, through, through newspapers, but they, after World War I, they really make the decision whether they're going to stay in the Midwest or, or go back home. And we have this legacy of Muslims of the heartland because so many of them decided to stay. Okay, so I only have about a minute and a half or so left, so I'm going to try to, to give you a question that you can answer relatively quickly. Um, here in the Quad Cities, uh, our German population very much established their own sets of communities. Um, you know, they, they created German-speaking newspapers, they created German banking systems. Were these Muslim immigrants from multiple places able to do that kind of thing as well, or were the numbers just never big enough to allow that to happen? The Arabs were, and, and this is one, one factor that I didn't tell you about before. Anywhere from 60 to 90 percent of all the Arabic-speaking immigrants from the 1880s until World War I, 100,000 of them, they were Christian, not Muslim. Ah. And they did establish institutions, but there weren't as many of them as Germans. Obviously, the German immigration, critical mass was reached in the, in the German-American community. And, of course, those institutions prospered until World War I when it became illegal to speak German in Iowa. Right. Right. Well, thank you so much. We have so much more to talk about, so please stay tuned to the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. Today's hit music. It's on The Stinger. The Stinger is more than music. You can binge on your favorite KALA podcast series. Take us along anywhere you go on any device. Find The Stinger now at tunein.com. Search for The Stinger, operated by KALA 88.5 FM. The Stinger. Today's hit music. Hello and welcome back to ROI, relevant or irrelevant. 
the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. And our guest for today is Dr. Edward Curtis, William M. and Gail M. Platter, Chair of Liberal Arts at Indiana University in Indianapolis. And we're talking about his book, Muslims in the Heartland. Our history buff for today's show is Ed Broders. So, Ed, why don't you start us off? Edward, you mentioned earlier in the show that 60 to 90 percent of the Arabic immigrants to the United States were Christians, and obviously the most of the rest would have been Muslims. When they came here, um, did they segregate themselves religiously, or did religion really not matter in that, you know, we're kind of Syrians first? Well, they established congregations not to segregate themselves, but to assimilate. So if you were living in the Midwest in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, the way that you assimilated into American culture was to establish your own ethnic religious congregation. So across Iowa, whether you were an Ashkenazi Jew or a Greek Orthodox or a German Lutheran or an Italian Roman Catholic or a Polish uh, Roman Catholic or a Bohemian Catholic, you were um, you needed that institution because that institution, that church for most people, and later on mosques and also synagogues, those congregations were like your community center, and they were the way that you volunteered in the society. It's the way that you organized your charity so you could give to your community. So this is this runs sort of this idea is a little bit hard for. Um, a lot of us to understand because we see assimilation or sort of resistance as zero-sum gains. It turns out that by preserving or, or building your ethnic religious identity through your congregation, you're actually assimilating into the Midwest because that's what everybody else is doing. And so, yes, they established Melkite churches, they established Orthodox churches, and they established Maronite churches. Those were the three largest denominations among Arabic-speaking people at that time. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the the kind of discrimination that hit um, Germans, particularly after World War I, uh, but it was already around before. Um, what kind of issues popped up for um, for uh, Arabs uh, in in terms of trying to, to assimilate, and, and what kind of pushback was there during that time period? So all the stereotypes that Americans have about Arabs today existed at that time. They're not trustworthy. They don't, um, they're not trustworthy in business. Uh, they, um, uh, Arab men abuse their Arab women. They're violent. They're irrational. Um, they're not white. They're different from us. They have a different culture. They can't assimilate. Um, those all appeared. But, you know, really, the, the, the story of Arabs, both Christians and Muslims, in Iowa is really an incredible story of participation rather than, than difficulty. Yes, they faced discrimination, but, but just like the Czechoslovak population in Cedar Rapids, and that made a great deal of difference, by the way, to the success of Arabs in, in Cedar Rapids. Um, they were able to amass enough 
power, enough social, cultural power in order to participate. And so by the 1930s, we have Iowa's Secretary of State coming to the mosque in Cedar Rapids to celebrate the presence of Muslims in Iowa. Now, this is different than some other communities. And and, and, and my book argues that the, 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 the key difference is that the Czech and Slovak populations have already paved the way in the 1870s and the 1880s by insisting that their language, their culture, would be part of public life in Cedar Rapids. Interesting. Ed? I don't know if Ed's muted on us or not. Ed, are you there? Okay, we may have lost him somewhere along the way. Um, okay. So, so we'll just carry on and hope that that he can eventually bounce back in. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Um, so that's really interesting because I think that's a story that that we very rarely hear um, when we talk about immigration and and how immigration worked in assimilation. Um, you know, the idea that that one group actually made things easier for another group or or you know, showed a way to do that. Um, and you said I was a little unique in, in that that really seemed to work well. Are there other states where it really seemed to work well? And are there any states where it didn't seem to work very well? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, the, um, you know, I mean, one of the things about Cedar Rapids is of course there, there was by world war one, um, and probably before there was anti-German prejudice, but the thing is that Cedar Rapids was such, it was a boom town. And they relied so much on the labor of people from different backgrounds that it was an economic necessity to a certain extent to allow for some diversity. You know, now you couldn't, if you were black or indigenous in Cedar Rapids, you were not afforded the same rights and privileges. But, you know, increasingly, if you could become white ethnic, you know, then you could find a lot of acceptance in the community. Uh, and public acceptance, not just private. And this was very different from Sioux Falls. You know, unlike Cedar Rapids, uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, had a, it did have a thriving community um, during World War One. But as, um, as the as xenophobia and nativism gripped much of the Midwest, um, we don't see the flowering of even though it's a town very similar to Cedar Rapids, you know, it's an agricultural town, you know, it, it has, a, it has a gro- some growth, just like Cedar Rapids, but you never see that flower into a thriving, you know, a mosque community. And I can't definitively say this, uh, but it seems to me that the difference is, is that Sioux Falls is dominated by the 1920s by its Anglo population. You know, it's a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant population, whereas Cedar Rapids is Catholic and Bohemian and, you know, and it's many different things. And I think that accounts for the difference. Okay. So we're talking about relatively small towns and, uh, you know, even Cedar Rapids is small by Chicago standards. Is the situation different in big cities? Yes. So what happens? So today, Detroit, Michigan is known as sort of the capital of Arab America. Even though there are probably more Arabs uh, overall in, in New York, there are a larger percentage 
uh, of them in Detroit, and they make they're 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 very um, public facing community, very much part of Detroit's ethnic and racial um, diversity. And the reason that Detroit became that was because in the 1920s and 30s, so many of the people who settled in North Dakota, South Dakota, and Iowa, uh, and other in Minnesota, uh, both Muslims and Christians, went to go work in the automobile industry. And you remember the, the Model T, the Model A, the Model T, you know, the uh, just the incredible, we associate the 1920s with the building of roads and the expansion of the automobile industry. And Arabs were um, overrepresented, if you will. There were a lot of Arab people working on the line in the 20s and 30s. And so Detroit and Dearborn, uh, which is established essentially by Henry Ford, um, become, uh, you know, have this very large representation of Arabs. And that then. Um, when immigration um, begins to loosen up um, slowly in the 50s with some refugees and then in the, with the changes in the laws in the 60s, you see even more um, Arab, Arabic-speaking people going there because, you know, they've already got an established community. And it's a very diverse community. In, in, you know, in a place like Cedar Rapids, you're lucky to have one mosque. In, uh, you know, in Detroit... Already by 1950, you've got a dozen of them. So, so it's a different. And the book tells the story of how so many of us Midwesterners, you know, how we go to the big city, oftentimes after World War One, to find work. Okay, so along those lines, and, and again, I, I am I, I know very little about this. So help me if I if I screw yeah, up please. somewhere love, along this you. way. Um, but in in. Iowa in the last, say, 20 years or so, we have seen um, immigrants, in, in our case particularly from um, uh, Africa and and um, to some extent from uh, Asia as well, going A lot into... Of Bosnians yes, in uh, Des Moines. Yes, um, going into things like the slaughterhouses, the meatpacking yeah. industries and things like that. Um, a lot of Hispanics also, and they've done so because they, you know, the assumption was that you would make pretty good money doing that. And that has been true to some extent and not true and to a lot of extent. What I'm wondering is we, we, again, I growing up in the, the sixties thought of the, the, the auto industry and working on the line in the, in, you know, making cars as very, very good money. And, and so people who did that were able to really move up socially and economically and so forth and so on. Was that true for these Arab immigrants as well? Or was that really not the case in the early part of the uh, auto industry's history? Because uh, I'm just I'm, I'm wondering, you know, did it help? to have better income opportunities in terms of establishing a sound, diverse community in, in a place like Detroit? It's a great question. So, um, so it, yes, is the answer. Those were, um, you know, like other auto workers, you know, in the 19, especially in the 1950s and 60s, you know, um, this definitely influenced um, you know, had had um, sort of ripples in the entire community. Those were great jobs. And Arab Americans actually played a very big role in unionization 
um, one of the top officials of the UAW was one of these, uh, you know, a Syrian Lebanese Christian person. So, so that was an important story. Now, if you survey, if you if you visit Cedar Rapids today, you'll find a very large number of Syrian Lebanese entrepreneurs who have done very well, who trace their their fourth or fifth generation in some cases. And how do they, you know, how did they become so successful? Well, I'll tell you what happened is these people started out mainly in, in places in Iowa. The re- one of the reasons they came to Iowa was they could, so that they could pedal. And they would sell anything in their pack, and then they would get a, 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 a carriage, a horse and carriage, and then they'd then, and then by the 1920s, they're mechanized, and you know they get, and they they have their rural roots, and they go and they visit, you know they learn what a farm family, especially the the wife, would want, and, and they would deliver it. So they become these peddlers. But by the 1920s, being a peddler, it turns out, is great training for becoming a grocer. And so they establish in the 20s and 30s, they establish grocery stores. Now. A grocery store is one of the best things you can own in the Great Depression because banks are not doing well, they're not trusted, and they become the de facto banking system for a lot of people. It's the only place where you can go get credit. And and sometimes these grocers, whether they're Syrian or Greek or German or whatever, you know, they oftentimes are run they're from your ethnic group. And they'll offer you credit, and sometimes it'll be two weeks. Some of them will keep they'll keep you on your books for six months. But when you get that paycheck, where do you take it? Not to the bank. You take it to the grocery store. So this um, essentially they become very successful financial institutions. It's kind of like it's almost like they're a uh, a grocery store in name, but they're actually a credit <laughs> granting right. institution. Sure. And this is what really makes it possible to have the money necessary to build a mosque in Cedar Rapids and to build a school and to educate children in the Quran, you know, to pay a teacher and, um, you know, to have, to have parties and to invite, they loved, you know, they love their parties. You, you have to have some money to have leisure, right? Sure. And so that's really the story of what happened. And then from that corner grocery store after World War II, they become, Highly, they're they're the third generation. Then become professionals, you know, or you know, doctors, lawyers, engineers, or they become successful entrepreneurs because there's very, I mean, there's not much better to train you to be an entrepreneur than running a corner grocery store. So, so let me kind of move a, a little bit closer to present day a little bit. Um, so, we certainly have seen an uptick in anti-Arab, uh, anti-Arab and anti-Muslim, both of those, um, in the last 20 years ago, uh, brought on by the Gulf War and all of the, th- the things that went along with that emotionally and, and whatever. Um, how have these immigrants that have done very well um, in general dealt with those kinds of issues? Are there are there things that that seem to to sort of help or insulate the community um are there things that tend to make it more vulnerable um you know how how do you manage in a situation when you're being more actively targeted yeah it all depends on where and when and around whom you are you know at the moment but what happens is i oftentimes will say that um uh 
that I became a lot browner after 9-11. Sure. Uh, because um, it's often assumed because I write about Islam and Muslims that I am Muslim. I'm not. I'm Arab-American, but I'm not Muslim. Um, but, it, but Islam became a racial identity. And, you know, what happened after 9-11, if you remember, is that um, people were randomly attacked who were not Muslim. Um, Arab Christians, the first man killed in a hate crime after 9-11 um, was not, he was a Sikh. He was, you know, and he, uh, um, you know, not Arab at all, but people get confused about the headdress. So, you know, so Sikhs, sometimes Hindus are, are attacked um, in hate crimes. So there's a general confusion, sort of, that the sort of, you know, Middle Eastern, South Asian looking people are somehow, you know, all Muslim. And of course, we're not. I mean, we're we're very diverse, um, and so uh, so it, it it matters where and when you are. So random acts of violence can happen to anyone, and those random acts can be a result of you know a, a bias or prejudice in a moment. So if somebody just happens to be mad at you, some you know, and and lose their marbles, you know, they can get they can get mad uh, and attack you. So, but with among your friends, your community members, your family members, I mean, one of the things is after 9-11, if you go to a community in Iowa that has a mosque, the leaders, right, many of the leaders, the non-Muslim leaders are going to stand with the Muslim community because they've been living there for sometimes four or five generations. They know them, you know, and there's a lot of interfaith and inter-ethnic dialogue that happened in Iowa and other places after 9-11 because of those. So it, it very much it depends. The one thing where you can't avoid prejudice sometimes is if you are actually the target of government surveillance or prosecution or counterintelligence. A lot of the prejudice eventually that came after 9-11 was not simply from, you know, random hate crimes. It was also from the government itself targeting both Arab and Muslim communities. Uh, this was especially bad in a place like New York City, sure. uh, and um, which eventually had to admit its wrongdoing and to the police department there. Again, in smaller, where you have smaller communities, like in Iowa, it can, and you have smaller scale, sometimes these are more manageable problems because of the personal relationships that people have. All right. Well, we have about a minute and a half left here, so I'm going to give you the last question. Um, so why do you think knowing about uh, Arab uh, immigrants and um, their history is relevant in today's world? Uh, you opened the show with the, I love that it's called Relevant or Irrelevant. It couldn't be more relevant because one is many Americans are still very concerned about the presence of Arab and Muslims and feel that they are a threat. So coming to know just how long Arabs and Muslims have been rooted in America is a powerful antidote to the assumption that there is any sort of, some sort of essential conflict or, or, or clash of civilizations. And, and I'll say that, you know, for those of us who are Arab and Muslim, this is a really important story because we learn that we are not somehow new to this land, to the Midwest, that we have been a part of it 
for as long as most other people in this region have been a part of it. And that it is our Midwest as much as it is everyone else's Midwest. And we have, we should celebrate the diversity that's always existed rather than assume somehow that this is uh, new and a foreign intrusion. This is just who we are as a Midwestern people. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 466th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and is written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Edward Curtis, William M. and Gail M. Platter, Chair of Liberal Arts at Indiana University in Indianapolis. We've been talking about his book, Muslims in the Heartland. The history buff for today's show was Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotza Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.